This information is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is offered with the understanding that the presenters are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert advice is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought. Welcome to the Real Estate Financial Planner Inside the Numbers podcast. I am your host, James Orr. This is Inside the Numbers for Episode 8. So in Episode 8, Norm and Norma go and buy 10, 20% down payment rental properties. And so I'm going to walk you through how we set up these scenarios so that you can go ahead and copy and write to your own account and make any modifications you want to so that it can better approximate your personal situation or just see how making changes affects Norm and Norma. So I'm going to click into the scenario right now. And I'm just going to walk you through what we use for all the assumptions and how we set it up. So this is a scenario. We named it whatever we wanted to. You can name it whatever you want to. We called it episode eight. And when you use these brackets around the thing, it makes this little red area so that you can see that. And then we just called it Norman Norma. And we say uh, buy 20% down payment rentals. Doesn't really matter what you call it here. It's just used to identify the scenario in a list or on charts. We're running it for 720 months, which if my math is correct, I think that's 60 years. And we don't use the naming of the people here. We'll eventually add that feature. Effective income tax rate. We went and looked it up at this uh, address right here, smartasset.com forward slash taxes forward slash income dash taxes. It's a link. You can click on it and you can put in your income and it will tell you what the effective income tax rate is for that person. We went and did this for Norman Norma's situation uh, based on the actual numbers that they had. And uh, we did 17.85 effective income tax rate. You can do whatever you want on there. And that's primarily used to calculate what the depreciation benefit is. So we'll use that effective income tax rate to determine how much cash flow from depreciation someone has by multiplying the depreciation amount they have by this number. Inflation rate, we're assuming it's 3%. When we do the advanced modeling, we do make this variable, but for the static assumptions, which is what I'm showing you today, uh, that is a 3% per year inflation rate. The uh, Fed actually says that they're trying to target 2% a year, but... You know, we've seen some pretty high inflation, uh, especially as I'm recording this. And so you could put in whatever you want. Just realize this is for the entire scenario, unless you use rules to set it for just periods of time. So uh, I use 3% to kind of show that maybe it's a little bit more than what the Fed's target rate is of uh, 2%. But historically, it's been closer to 3%. If you look at the numbers, it's probably even a little bit above that with our kind of recent uh, kind of bump up. Mortgage interest rate, 5.5%. This would be used if you were doing any type of refinancing. Right now, we set this in the property, uh, but it is set to this number. It's 5.5%. And this is the interest rate that owner-occupants are getting as of about, I don't know, two weeks ago or so when I called up the lender and I got recent quotes. Uh, but this is 5.5% for a 5% down uh, owner-occupant property. And then for the investor property, I'll show you where we use that in the property itself. And that's considerably higher because it's non-owner occupants, an investment property, and we're putting 20% down. Minimum target monthly income retirement. So remember, they're trying to say that uh, they want $5,000 a month adjusted for inflation. So it actually goes up over time, keeps pace with inflation, so that they're living at a $5,000 per, per month lifestyle in today's dollars. But uh, they're starting at $5,000 per month, and uh, that's their minimum target monthly income retirement. Remember, they're making $6,000 a month. They're saving 1000 of that. So really, their target income is that 5000 
and then ideally they'd like to make $10,000, we use these two numbers to determine whether or not they've achieved their goal. So we say, did you achieve a goal of minimum target monthly income retirement of 5,000? And we use the, you know, any uh, social security, pensions or annuities, plus any uh, positive cash flow from rental properties after all expenses, uh, plus that uh, last one, uh, which is the uh, safe withdrawal rate times their account balance invested in, you know, stocks or bonds or whatever. Uh, all three of those combined would need to generate this $5,000 a month for them to be considered financially independent and have achieved their goal. So it's 5000 for the minimum and $10,000 for the ideal. And then we do adjust that number down when they pay off their owner-occupant mortgage. Although in this case, they don't have an owner-occupant mortgage. They decided to keep renting and they're buying just 10 20% down rentals. So this is not going to come into play at all. But if they did, if you wanted to go and modify the scenario and add in that you have an owner-occupant property to begin with, or you have a uh, owner-occupant property that you're going to buy as part of this plan, maybe you're in a nomad, or maybe you're just going to buy an owner-occupant, then this would actually adjust those numbers, the $5,000 and $10,000 down once you pay off the mortgage, buy whatever the mortgage payment was on your owner-occupant. It only does that once. So if you happen to have two properties that you pay off while you live there, it only makes an adjustment for the first one. Uh, yearly safe withdrawal rate, this is the number we would multiply by whatever the amount of money they have in the stock market or, you know, stocks or bonds or whatever they have there. Uh, this is the 4% safe withdrawal rate number. So we're using 4% here. You could say it's 3%. You could say it's, you know, 3.3 or, you know, some people are using a little bit higher because the the creator of the 4% rule has come out recently. Um you know, about a year or so ago and said that he thought it could be actually a little higher now, although he's since gone back on that and said that maybe it should be a little lower again. So I don't know, 4%, I think is a reasonable number for a lot of folks to use. You can go ahead and use whatever you want. That's what we're using for Norm and Norma in this situation. And then stereo description, this is really just your place to keep notes about what you did and why, what your assumptions were, where you got your numbers from, what you're actually trying to accomplish with this, what you're testing. So it's really yours to kind of put whatever numbers or data you want in here. We just kind of wrote out a description of what they're doing so that people know when they go to copy this to their own account. So this would show up as a description of that scenario. Uh, you're not doing any Monte Carlo because your account probably doesn't have that. Uh, we we have it set to run one scenario, but we you know when we do the advanced modeling, you know we'll set that to a thousand and have it run a thousand times to do it. Uh, this is set up so that they could share with anyone. You could lock it down so that it's only you, so no one else can see it, or you could set it up so that it's anyone with a special link, and then it'll actually include a a password link in this thing itself. It's a randomly generated numbered letter combination that would uh, prevent other people from being able to access your scenario without having that number too. And then, of course, if you want to change it, you can go ahead and, and uh, reset the password in case you want to lock people out again or just set it to only you at that point. So accounts, so they have two accounts. They have that default cash account, which always starts with $0. It always earns $0. Um, it's available in every single scenario. And we use this as primarily a way to say, hey, look, if you ever run out of money and you're all in one account, we're not going to let this one go to go negative. We're going to say that that goes to zero. But then I'm going to show you that, hey, you needed to put more money into this model in order to be able to complete it. And so we use this default cash account as a way to say, you know, this is how many extra money you need to put in there. It's a really easy way to check to see if you ran out of money and how much did you run out by. So that's why we set up the two accounts. The all-in-one account is an additional account that was added for Norma Norma, and they have $10,000 in that initially. It earns 8%. They, they say they have it invested in stocks. In reality, it's probably mostly in stocks, and they probably keep a little bit in a checking account. It's kind of like their, their kind of slush fund there. 
but it really rather than keep track of two accounts where you have a small amount in one and a really large amount in another and you're constantly moving money back and forth it's much simpler to model if you just keep one account and you call that you know eight percent if you do have multiple accounts you've got like a you know an ira or a 401k and that has a very different set of rules about when you can do things with like you have required minimum distributions or whatever you could set up separate rules for required minimum distributions on that account if you wanted to this one they were just really doing simple modeling where we have this all in one account where they're doing that if you want to see how to edit this you click into the account and then you could change whatever you want to call it um i i strongly recommend just a side note do not put your actual account numbers here. And I would even say, don't put your bank account like name in here. Um, you know, we're, we're completely secure. It's SSL top, you know, encryption type stuff in there, but you know, why put it, why put your number in there? Why put it at an extra place on the internet where you have your account name or your account number in there? I think it's just prudent to you not doing it. So, you know, just do like main checking account or my main brokerage account or whatever. And that's an easy way to do that. You can put whatever you want in here. I just recommend as a general practice, has nothing to do with us, but as general practice, don't put your personal account information or bank account numbers or accounts, everything on there. Although every time you write a check, your account number's on there, but I digress. So anyway, this is your account name. You name it whatever you want in here. Uh, you could set it up so that it opens at a certain date. In most cases, you're just gonna leave that blank and open with the very beginning. You have $10,000 to start. It's earning 8% per year. And then you have stocks in this case uh, that you're vesting. This really doesn't get used except for charting how much you have in your asset allocation. So we'll use this when we create our asset allocation charts to show I have X percent in stocks or X percent in bonds and X percent in cash or whatever it is. You can choose the asset type that you have here and it will show you that there. Okay, so that's it. Oh, by the way, as an aside, this shows you where, what scenarios this account is used in. Um, you can kind of just see the different scenarios we're using the same account for. Um, and then it also shows you what properties are using it and what rules are using it. So all that's listed at the bottom of the account page. Okay. So properties. So they are doing this 20% uh, down payment rental property. That's the property that they're buying. I'm going to go in and look at the details of that. But I do want to point out a couple little things about this that you may not have noticed before. So when you run your scenario and you actually buy properties, uh, it shows you which wh where your properties are. So it shows you all the different properties that you bought in the scenario. And you can click through any of these to see charts just for that property. So for example, if I wanted to see just charts for this um, you know, typical property and then the 10th one that I bought, you can click into this and look at this. You could also add in additional properties. So if you wanna look at property 10 and property seven, you can click on that and see both of those at the same time if you wanted to. If you just wanted to see one, you could do just one. You could also remove number seven or room number 10 if you want to and then you can see all these different charts if you want to see how much appreciation you had on any chart on any property you could do that you could see you know any number of charts here there's a whole list of them probably i don't know if i had to guess 50 or so so you can go look at all that detail if you want to um, and you can look at all of your properties at the same time if you really wanted to do that so i'll go back a couple steps here to get back to the list we we're looking at okay so, so you could do that. You could do all properties. So if you want to see all the ones that were based on this particular one, it'll show all those together on there. And you could see them and you could toggle each one off on the chart if you want to. So all this stuff is available for you if you want to. You could, you could drill into any of Norm and Norma's situation. Or like if you're running this yourself and you want to see how, you know, property number four is performing or, you know, why is this one seep so weird or what's happening with it? You can do that. And all the charts for the individual properties are available right here. So that's just one way to get to this. 
So let's take a look at the property. And before I do that, I'm going to run through what some of these things are here. So a lot of these, we'll try to include, we'll try to pull out the most commonly looked at variables that we have in this thing. So it shows you, you know, what the purchase price is, $375,000, 3% appreciation on that, $2,600 a month in rent with 3% appreciation, 3% vacancy, 10% maintenance. They're doing property management themselves. So 0% property management, 20% down payment is what they're using for that. They're getting a 360 month mortgage at 6.625%. That's a 20% down non-owner occupant or an investor loan rate as of right about now. And then what accounts they're depositing their down payment and their closing costs to. So that all in one account. And then what account are they doing for their income expenses? So where do we deposit the rents and other income on the property? And where do we pull out the mortgage payment, taxes, insurance? And so you could separate which ones those are for there. Then additionally, this shows you that it's a dynamic property. Dynamic for us is really a template. And I've actually thought about renaming it template. But right now we're calling it dynamic. And the reason why I say it's dynamic is it's a property that like in our system, this property exists before you buy it. And so it's like, this is a prototypical property. It's appreciating in the background. Rents are going up. Property values are going up. You know, all the things are happening on this property before you even own it in the system. And then if you decide you want to buy it in month 13, then we go look at what it's doing in the background. That's why I call it dynamic. It's like a property that exists in parallel in the back of the, in the universe, um, in the, in the software before you actually acquire it. And so that's how we do it that way. I probably could call it a template because it really is a sort of template property of one that you're going to be buying more than once, but that's what dynamic means. So that shows you right there. And then this little thing, this is the cash flow power meter. If you haven't seen the cash flow power meter class, you may want to watch that, but that shows you at a glance how this property is cash flowing. And so the red area here would show you that a property, if this black line, it shows you um, where it is. So this is rent uh, and, and then it's showing you where what rent you're getting and where that is on the cash flow power meter. So it shows you if you have really strong positive cash flow with a property manager, that would be anywhere in this really dark green area. It might be harder for you to see in here, but that's where you would have positive cash flow with a professional property manager. This light green area shows you that positive cash flow if you were managing it yourself. So a property management were zero, and the, if the black line was anywhere in this green area, you would have positive cash flow if you were managing it yourself. The black line is right on the line between having positive cash flow and this yellow area. The yellow area means that you would have positive cash flow if you were managing it yourself and if you included the cash flow from depreciation. So this takes into account the tax benefits. So anything in the yellow area would show that you have positive cash flow if you're managing it yourself and you are taking into account cash flow from depreciation on that. So that would be in the yellow area, which is sort of on the cusp. So this is sort of break-even cash flow right here uh, without including tax benefits. And then if it goes from the yellow to the red, the red means you have negative cash flow, even including taking into account the cash flow from depreciation. Um, but red also means that it's still in the area where you're paying down on the loan. So if you had a interest-only loan or uh, if it went into the gray area, which is actually uh, right here on this left side, you barely see it. But if it's in the gray area, that means that you're not even making enough money in rent to um, be positive if you take into account how much you're paying down the loan. So your rent is so low that you're not even making enough such that you would have positive cash flow if you took into account uh, the amount you're paying down in principal on the loan. Or another way to say this, you'd be negative cash flow even if you had an interest-only loan. So it's a visual way to see that at a glance. It does show up at the top of the property um, edit page, which I'll show you here in a second. But this meter right here is the same one as this at the top. It's just magnified, okay? So you can see now the line's a little bit less thick. You can see that this is just the tiniest bit negative uh, from you managing yourself um, 
if you took into account cash flow from depreciation, it's toward the upper end of this. So it's probably negative, I don't know, $10 or so a month. We can take a look at that. So that just shows you what this meter looks like. That's the cash flow power meter. All right, so for the property, uh, we just named it whatever you want to. We called it the typical 20% down payment rental property just so that we can identify it in the list of properties. It, this is a dynamic property or a template as we kind of talked about. The opposite of being a dynamic property or a template, the one that you buy multiple ones of, is a property that you already own. So it can either be a property that's sort of one that you're going to buy copies of in the future, or it's a property that you actually like own already and it's a specific property. And so if you click on already own property, you'd be entering information about when you bought it, what your current mortgage balance is, what your current payment is. And we'd ask questions like that. If it's a template, we're going to ask you like, what's the rent right now? What's the uh, after repaired value right now? And we'll ask those questions. And then finally, we ask you if you're owner occupying the property and whether it is allowed to be a nomad or not. So we would click off this nomad property. That shows if you go buy another owner occupant property, you would replace that other one. So that's why Nomad is kind of a specific term there and it's separate from these. So uh, Nomad property could either be dynamic or something that you already own, but you really have the choice there. So the address or description, you could put in an actual address near. Again, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm a little bit paranoid about security, which is probably good for you because I wrote the software, but I would not encourage you to put in actual address here, right? You know, put in Main Street or, or, or North Street or whatever your thing is, unless you have multiple ones on there and then kind of do, you know, whatever your number is for that. But you put in, you could use either a description or you could put an actual address in here. Like when I do my personal stuff in here, I put in an address uh, just so that I know what it is. But these are what show up on the chart. So when you're looking at, you know, what property it is, it'll show up on a chart. And if it's a template, it'll add a number to the back of this. So it'll say typical 20% down payment rental property, one. And then for the second one you buy, it'll be two. Third one you buy, it'll be three. And it just numbers them sequentially so that you could see what order you bought them in. And then you could put city or state. It doesn't use it for anything, but just put in whatever city you have the property in or whatever state. Um, it's completely optional or zip code. And then after repaired value, this is what the property is worth all fixed up. In this case, uh, the purchase price is the same as the after repaired value. It's $375,000. So those are identical. So he's, they're buying it. They're not getting a discount. They're ba basically paying full price for the property. Mortgage interest rate. This is the interest rate they're getting on that 30-year mortgage. It's 6.625. The mortgage term, 360 months or 30 years. And then they're putting 20% down here. You could also put in, you know, the dollar amount that you want to do. You want to put in, you know, $100,000 down or whatever. But I would recommend you put in percent. And these are one or the other. So you don't pick both. You just say, I'm either putting 20% down or I'm putting $100,000 down. Uh, but it would use this. So their loan amounts, um, they're putting down 20%, which would be about $75,000. The loan amount's gonna be 300,000. Their mortgage payment on that would be 192093. It does that calculation after you hit save. So if you're putting in these numbers, you'd have to hit save in order to have the calculation shown to you. And then the principal interest, taxes and insurance, when we add all those in, is 228031. And we'll get to what the tax insurance assumptions are here in a second. And then if you do principal interest, tax and insurance, which is PITI, plus the HOA, plus PMI, which in this case, they don't have PMI, but if they did, then it would be 2280.31. So there's no HOA because these are the same and there's no PMI. So yearly private mortgage insurance rate, it's zero. If they were put less 20% down, you'd probably put something in there. We didn't in this case. And then when do they drop the private mortgage insurance? In some cases, it never drops like an FHA loan or for like a conventional loan, it usually drops around 80%. Sometimes we'll put it in 78. So it's a little bit more conservative that way. You know, it, it holds on to it for an extra few months uh, just in case, you know, you're, you don't know the property value has gone up and you delay it a little bit or something like that. So 
Uh, closing costs here, we're assuming 3%. The reason why this is so high, typically I would use 1% here, but the reason why we're using a 3% number here is when I called up my lender in order to get the quote for that particular rate on the day that I did, um, you know, the uh, 6.625, he said it's 6.625, but it requires you pay two points. In fact, they, they did not allow a loan um, for less than that. So you had to pay the two points in order to be able to do that. Okay. So where was I here? Oh, closing costs. So 3%. So 1% in regular closing costs and then two points on the loan. So that's what we use for that. Uh, rent ready costs. So this property was ready to go. You didn't have to do anything. Paid full price. So uh, doesn't surprise us that he doesn't have any rent ready costs. Although in reality, you probably always have you know $500 in repairs to do on a new property that you acquire. It's really exceptional to buy a property and not have to do anything. You know, you have your inspection done. There's a whole bunch of little nickel and dime stuff that you probably should go in there and fix before your tenant goes in. Uh, seller concessions. They were not able to negotiate to get a seller to give any concessions on this. Uh, it's a residential property. And we need to know the value of the land in order to calculate the depreciation benefit. So we assume the value of the land is 15% of the purchase price. So it'll, it'll do the math correctly and say you can only depreciate the value of the building, which is now 85% of the purchase price because 15% is for the land. And so we'll do those calculations and it walks you through how we do the math in case you want to see that. And then which accounts we deposit um, the income and expenses to, which is all, all in one account. And then what account do we look for to see if we have enough down payment and other purchase expenses. And that's the one we look for here. Appreciation rate, this is that 3%. If you don't think you're gonna get 3% in your market, you think it's gonna be lower than that, you think it's gonna be higher, you can adjust that here. Start rent after a certain number of months. So if you're buying a property and you know you have six months worth of work to do on the property before it's ready to rent, you could put a delay in here and say, you know, I'm not gonna rent this for six months or something. So you can delay that start there. Monthly rent, $2,600 a month. Rent depreciation rate, that's 3%. And so again, these two, the 3% appreciation rate and the 3% rent appreciation rate, those are the ones that we're making variable when we do the advanced modeling. So in the advanced modeling, we're doing Monte Carlo, we're doing a thousand runs, we're showing you what's the impact if property prices don't always go up at 3% or what happened if property prices don't always, or rent property, rent prices don't always go up at 3%. You know, what if they're sometimes negative or sometimes a little bit more than this? And so when we run those in the advanced modeling, um, we make these variable. Um, along with the interest rate. So that's another thing we make variable. If you had other income from this property, you'd put it here. In this case, they don't have any other income coming in. If they were like, you know, renting out an extra garage or they, you know, got rent for a storage unit on the premises or they had a laundry unit and let's say it was a fourplex and they had an on-site laundry, you could put any other income there. And then you could have that other income going up at its own rate because maybe that's not increasing at the same rate rents are. Um, and rather than putting, you know, 2650 in rents and always having that go up by 3%, we said, hey, it's a little bit more realistic that sometimes you have these things that you're going to get $50 from it, but it's not really going to keep pace with inflation. You know, maybe it's only going up at 1% or 2%. Or maybe you have something that's going to go up in value a lot faster, something that's really attractive about your property. And you can go ahead and model that independently with these two, the monthly other income and then other monthly income appreciation rate. So this just shows you your monthly gross potential income, which is your monthly rent plus that monthly other income, and it shows you it's 2,600 plus zero or $2,600 a month total. Vacancy rate, you know, I, I think some people would argue that vacancy rate is low. We're using 3%. We're assuming that they're starting 90 days before the property is vacant and they're advertising to find a tenant in advance. They're doing all the maintenance they need to do on the property while the tenant's there. They're maintaining it really well. And so this is for someone who is like really on top of their game. They're also not pushing rent that much, right? Because there's a 
there's a kind of sweet spot between if you charge a lot for rent, it may take you longer to find it, which means your vacancy is going to be higher. Or if you charge a little less for rent, then maybe your vacancy is going to be a little bit lower because you can find someone a little bit easier. So they're using 3% here. You can change that to be whatever you want. Uh, property taxes, we're assuming that is 0.75% of the value of the property. So as the property goes up in value, then the property taxes will also increase as well. So for this property, that means it's $2812.50 per year. So $2812.50 per year, about $234 a month is what property taxes are. And that's based loosely on a non-specific city, but probably closer to the cities where I live. Um, if you are living in another area and your taxes are much higher, like if you live in you know, Texas, as an example, I think has a much higher tax rate or Illinois um, or New York. I think all those states and, um, and, and cities, they probably have much higher tax rate. So go ahead and adjust that, You know, adjust whatever it is for your marketplace. That's one of the reasons why we did the 300 city modeling is I use different tax rates, different insurance rates, different property prices and different um, uh, rents in those markets so that we could see a better approximation of how the models work for all those different cities. So you can go look at our realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model to see those as well. Property insurance, very similar. We're using 0.4% of the property value each year for property insurance. So based on the current price and 0.4%, that's about $1,500 a year, about $125 a month. That's probably pretty low. Um, you could probably argue that you can increase that. Well, it depends on where you are. I mean, right now, where we live, uh, property insurance is pretty reasonable. Yearly HOA. So if you had an HOA, you put in the yearly amount there. And then if you're HOA, you expect that to go up faster or slower than inflation. You could adjust what the HOA appreciation rate is separately here. Monthly utilities, if, if you have like a fourplex and you were buying a property and you were paying for the uh, shared entryway or you had to keep an outdoor light on or something like that, or you had to pay for water for the grass you're separately yourself, you could put in landlord paid utilities here. In this case, um, we're doing zero because it's a single family home and the tenant's going to pay for all utilities on the property. And then we have a separate utility appreciation rate in case that's going up faster or slower than inflation. And then we added in two additional expenses here. So um, other monthly expense one, other monthly expense two. We use $0 for both those. And they each have their own inflation rate in case you have something unique to your properties that you want to do. You know, you have landscaping costs or, you know, your own, um, you know, snow removal or something like that that you need to have that you're paying as a landlord on those. And just to be clear, these are expenses the landlord's paying. So a lot of these, um, the you know the tenant's going to take care of like maintenance on the property. I'm sorry, not maintenance on the property, uh, utilities on the property or HOA, um, uh, whatever it is on here. Okay. So uh, after the monthly expenses, maintenance on the property, 10% of the gross rents. So that's uh, $252.20 a month on maintenance. And then property management, we're assuming they're managing it themselves. So zero for that. And then it walks you through some of the operating expense calculations, net operating income, cap rate, and then monthly cash flow. And so as I mentioned above, when we're looking at that cash flow power meter, uh, it's negative $10.51 per month. And you could see exactly how we walk through it. These are the operating expenses and what they were. These are the uh, descriptions. And then here are the numbers. And then here's net operating income calculation. And here's cap rate, and then here's the cash flow, net operating income minus the mortgage payment minus PMI, and it shows you how we did that calculation. So break-even rent would have been two sixty-two. I'm sorry, twenty six hundred twelve dollars and three cents per month. And if you had, um, if it was twenty-five dollars a month in cash flow, it would be two six forty sixty-seven. And if it was twenty-five dollars negative, it'd be this number. Just shows you those in case you're wondering. 
And then if you are setting aside money for CapEx separately, you could put that right in here. It's it's a dollar format instead of a percent, so you can decide to do it that way. And then we have a separate CapEx appreciation rate. So if you prefer to do your maintenance and CapEx as a percentage of rents, you could definitely model it that way. If you prefer to do it as a fixed dollar amount, you could do it that way. That's why these are separated out. Um, they technically are different, and I talk about that in the CapEx classes, but I set them up so that you could really, it, some people prefer to model it as a percentage of gross rents. Some people prefer to model it as a dollar. Some people prefer to model it where they do both. And then this is when you're calculating true net equity, how much true net equity after their closing cost expense, real estate commissions when they sell the property, the depreciation recapture tax, when they have to do the, the pay taxes on the amount that they depreciated when they sell property, and then their capital gains tax rate. So you can change all these assumptions if you, know, you have a real estate license and maybe you're only paying you know, half a commission. Because uh, you're going to sell it yourself, or you know, maybe you're in a really low income year and your depreciation recapture tax is going to be zero, or um, you know, you're living in the property for two years, your capital gains is going to be zero because it's you know two out of the last five years, and you're going to get an exemption for that. Or maybe your closing costs when selling are much higher, um, or maybe you're selling it on a lease option and you're not having to pay a commission at all, you know, or for set by owner. So you can adjust these so that it does the calculations correctly for true net equity and for when you sell properties and stuff like that. Um, but that's there. And then down below, it just does some math for you. It shows you the return in dollars quadrants, the return on investment quadrant, the return on equity quadrants. And then I do ones with reserves so that you can see what it looks like when you do that there. And so it just shows you a bunch of that math already for you in case you want to just look at that as uh, part of your calculations. Okay, so that's how we entered the property. But putting a property into the scenario doesn't mean that you own it, right? This is a template. And it says, okay, this template exists with this scenario. We're kind of keeping track of it. But you know, in order for you to actually buy a property, we need to use rules for that. And so I'll show you the rules here. Um, uh, and before I get to that, these are other properties that are not included in this scenario. We're going to use those in the other uh, modeling that we do. And then rules. So uh, you've seen me do rules before. So I'm going to kind of go fast through the ones that were there in, in existence before, you know, today's scenario. But we have two different versions of income. We have norms, job income, <clears throat> excuse me, and we have Norma's job income. And we just separated out and said, you know, there's two different ones. I could have just as easily done this as the same, but I did it separately so that you could actually have you and your spouse, which presumably make different incomes. And, you know, one of them may stop working earlier than the other or whatever you want to do there. I set it up so that it's easier for you to do that. One could argue I should have just done one and I probably should have just done one. So it shows you that it's included in this scenario. We're depositing the paycheck and personal, withdrawing the personal expenses from that all-in-one account. They're earning $3,000 a month. It does stop in retirement and they have zero expenses with this rule. There's another rule for expenses that we have separately and they're paying taxes of 17.85% on that $3,000. And then Norma's income is exactly the same. It's a, it's a copy of the rule. So $3,000 with zero in expenses, 17.85. They're basically two of the same exact rule, one for him, one for her. And then we have a shared personal expenses. Now, I didn't do two different expenses because I assume they're living together and they've got shared expenses, but here's what their expenses are. Um, it basically shows it's the all-in-one account that they're doing it from. They're earning $0 with this rule, but the expenses are $39.30. So after uh, taxes, and um, uh, this does not include their mortgage payment, taxes or insurance on their property, but they need to have $39.30 in, in expenses well, I take that back. They're renting in this case. So this does include their rent. This is not an owner-occupant scenario. So because it's uh, it's they're renting, this includes their rent. And uh, we're assuming it's $1,800 uh, for rent, which is the remnants from when we ran the last scenario and they bought an owner-occupant. It's set up to automatically do that uh, to change it for that. And then they're not paying any tax on it because you don't pay taxes on the expenses. 
Uh, passive makeup. So this is them starting Social Security uh, at age 67. So we write down that uh, they're going to earn 1553 adjusted for inflation. That's what IA stands for uh, when they reach age 67. So it starts in month 552 and it runs for the remaining scenario for both of them. So it's identical for both of them uh, for passive income. And then here's that last rule. This is the rule that says, hey, buy a property when the account has enough for the down payment. And I just named it something that says buy up to 10, 20% down payment rentals. And it kind of shows you what the assumptions are, but I'll go in here and I'll show you exactly what they are here. So this is the rule. It says buy property when account is down payment. The rule runs for the entire scenario, just to run for part of it, select dates or dumps. So we're running this from the very beginning till the very end, and it will stop when they get to 10 rentals. But we name it whatever you want here. This, this doesn't get used anywhere. It's just for you to identify it in the list. So we're saying buying up, buy up to 10, 20% down payment rentals. We're using this rule in this scenario. Which property are we buying? We're buying that typical 20% down payment rental that we talked about before. Which account do we want to check for the down payment? We're going to check that all in one account. And if that all in one account has enough for down payment, then we're going to use that. And then minimum account balance. If you want to say, hey, I need to have at least $100,000 in my account before I'm willing to buy a property, you can put that number here. And if you want to say, I want it to be $100,000, but I want that to adjust up with inflation, you can click off this inflation adjusted. For Norma Norma, we said we don't need to have any extra money beyond what I have below here, which I'll talk about those here in a second. But we don't need to have any extra money in addition. So no minimum account balance plus minimum months of reserves for this property. So we are saying in order to buy this property, we need to have six months of reserves for this property, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, um, you know, all that stuff on the property in order for this rule to be able to trigger. So we're saying we need six months of reserves for this property that we're buying plus six months of reserves for personal expenses. So it's going to look at whatever your personal expense number is. And you're going to say you need six months of reserves for that too in addition to six months for the property you're buying, and plus the minimum months of reserves for other properties. You also need to have six months of reserves for all of the other rental properties that you currently own in order to do that. So what we're saying is there's no additional money in addition to all these rent months of reserves, but you do need to have six months of reserves for this property, six months of personal expenses and reserves, and six months of reserves for any other properties you own in order to be able to buy this property, plus the down payment. Okay, so it'll require the down payment plus closing costs um, in order to do that. So that 20% down plus 3% in closing costs, plus six months reserves, plus six months reserves, plus six months reserves, and then plus zero extra dollars. You could say they want extra dollars here, whatever you want to do, okay? And then in this case, we're saying, how many properties of this should we buy maximum? Once we get to this number, we stop. But I should point out, if you do have this rule running and you sell a property, it will add more. So like if you, if you had got to 10, you sold the property, now you're down to nine, then the next month you have a down payment, it'll try to buy another one. So this rule will continue uh, if you do that. But in this case, we're not selling any properties, but we're saying we're buying 10 with that, okay? And we're also saying, in addition to all that reserves and the down payment and the closing costs, they also need to um, reach a, a less than 45% debt to income ratio. So if by buying this property, they're gonna be over 45% debt to income, we're not letting them buy it. So we do check that to make sure. You can toggle that on and off if you do not wanna have a check for maximum debt to income, like if you're buying properties outside the MLS or doing some type of special loan that didn't have a debt to income, which would be unusual, um, you could go ahead and uh, you know toggle this off. But in this case, we're doing 45. Or if you say, look, you know, loans I'm getting requires 50% debt to income, you can bump that up to whatever it is for you. For Norman Norma, we're saying 45%. And then if you were a real estate agent and you were earning a commission on your purchase, you can go ahead and put that number in here. Whatever it was, that would be a percentage of the purchase price. And then this other stuff down here, which we're not doing, 
is uh, this is if you want them to be able to do cash out refinances on the existing properties that they own if they're short on down payment and their closing costs are reserved. So you're like, hey, if, if uh, I got all this equity in the five other properties I bought so far, go ahead and do up to 75% loan to value and pay a point in order to do the refinance and be able to pull money out in order to qualify to buy the new loan. That'll do this. That's what this is all for. But in this case, they're not doing any of that. Okay. So that's the setup for the scenario. Um, and that's the end. And so basically they would go and click run after that. And when they click run, It'll show this scenario in here. It'll say complete when it's done here. If you wanted to edit it again, you can click the edit button or this button in order to do this, this text. Uh, if you want to rerun it, you click this refresh button and it would rerun. It you know takes like, I don't know, 30 seconds or so, depending on your account. Uh, most, most times it takes about 30 seconds to run. And then at the end, you click on these charts in order to be able to see all the charts for it. I'll show you that here in a second. If you wanted to make a copy of this scenario, if you happen to have an account where you can do more than one, you can make a copy, then make changes to other ones. And then you can compare you know, the baseline scenario to whatever the change you made. You know, they make $100 more a month in rent or they start with $5,000 more. They make $50 more a month in, in their job or whatever it is you want to do, you can change all that. And then, of course, if you want to delete it and start over so that you can do um, another account or copy a different account here, you click delete and you'll want to confirm that you want to delete it. But if you want to see these charts for this, you just click this. Um, and do that. I'm going to show you something else before I do that, though. Uh, so this summarizes. It shows you have two accounts, that default cash account and the all-in-one account. You bought 10 properties. There were six rules. You, meet, you reach your minimum target monthly income retirement at month 370. You reach your ideal target monthly income retirement at month 554. You might reach two times your ideal at 558. You have a $60.64 million net worth at the end of the scenario. That $5,000 target monthly income at the start, 4% staple jar rate. We're doing this in May of 2022. That's when I ran it last. And then my max monthly income required in order to buy these properties was this number here. And then uh, the amount saved in month two, it just shows you like how much they're saving approximately. And then for the summary, you can click on this. I'll show you that. Um, and then the um, other reports here, your blueprints. And that's probably all you want to see here. So the summary just walks you through a couple of the most common charts the assumptions for the properties and the rules that you have set up there. So you can see all that. And then if you want to see the charts, you can click on the charts and the charts allow you to see um, charts for the scenario charts for any of the accounts and charts for any of the properties that you own. And you can go and look at the different ones here. So for example, for the entire scenario, it defaults to net worth. You could do adjustments to see different things, you know, show the significant events or not show them and, and all that other stuff. Uh, but you can look at, you know, any of these charts, you can look at, you know, what percentage of their goal they have. Um, you can zoom in, you can you know, zoom out, you can decide, say, I only want to look at the first 12 months. And I'll show you just the chart of that. Or I want to look at, you know, year 240 through 360. And I'll show you just that part of the charts or, you know, just show me the first 12 months as bar charts, you know, kind of shows you that. I mean, so there's all different things you could do there. So that's all I got for you though. This has been James Orr with Inside the Numbers podcast for episode number eight with Norma Norma. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, exceptionally long one. I tried to be a little bit more thorough and go through some of the features as well. So hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, have a great day. Bye-bye for now. Oh, I almost forgot. You can download the newest version of the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet for free. Just go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet to download it right now. It's amazing. Bye-bye for now.